Welcome to Politics in Question, the podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing and how to fix them. I'm Lee Drotman, a senior fellow at New America. And I'm James Walner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. So today we have a very special episode, and it's it's a little different than the typical politics in question episode, but I, I think you're going to like it because we have a very special guest today, and our guest is Jake Tapper. Yes, that Jake Tapper, the guy you see on your CNN every night. And we're also going to do something different in that we're going to talk about a piece of fiction, which is uh, Jake's new novel, a thriller, All the Demons Are Here, which I uh, I stayed up late reading last night. It was a uh, it's a it's a it's a real page turner. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, Jake. We are delighted to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So I love novels. Uh, I love history, and I, I especially love novels that remix real historical events and reimagine them and introduce new characters. So this is very much in the vein of like a Gore Vidal novel for me. And you're a journalist, you're a history buff. What does writing a novel allow you to do that doing a, a kind of straight up journalistic nonfiction book about a time and a period doesn't allow you to do? That's such an interesting question. I do write nonfiction too, but I generally do nonfiction on like a very focused issue as opposed to, you know, grand political themes or, you know, I haven't written a book about the Trump presidency or or the like. I'm not really interested in that. But I heard an, a quote. I was listening to Jake Gyllenhaal on a different podcast, on Armchair Podcast, and he was talking about something that this is, so I already sound so pretentious, but this is not something that Ang Lee said to him, which was, we pretend so we can tell the truth about fiction in general. He was talking about film, I guess. And so one of the reasons I write these historical thrillers is because I want to, A, it's an escape for me as a writer from the day-to-day -day grind of, of daily journalism, but then B, it's a way to get at larger themes uh, about topics in politics and media that I want to explore in a way that is not luxury but kind of illustrative, telling a story, explaining how I view something or what something I think is a problem, like in this book, tabloid journalism, or, you know, mobs following charismatic characters. Those are two themes, you know, that are from recent lives from today, uh, but also that I explore in the book in the context of 77. And so I think that's one of the, one of the, you know, making things up to tell the truth, kind of, in the, in the mold of Ang Lee. Well, I don't I don't think that's pretentious at all. I mean, growing up in the deep south in South Georgia, we would have, you know, we'd sit around because we were bored. We wouldn't have anything to do. We, you know, we had to just sit there and listen to our family members and the older folks talk. And they would sit there and they would tell stories. They would just tell stories all the time. And most of it was just made up. But it was important because that's how we related to the world. That's how we transmitted our traditions down. And it's how we told stories about and better understood the past was by storytelling. And I think that's it's an absolute critical thing. And I think it's something that we've steadily lost in our overly empirical world that we live in today. But, you know, Hemingway, if I recall, said, you know, as a writer, you should not judge, you should understand. 
And I, I'm curious, how does, if you've thought about this, how does, how does writing stories and telling stories and fictionalized accounts of things, how does that help you to better understand the kind of crazy world of politics around us now? And if it does, does that help you then help us as your audience and your viewers better understand what you're seeing out there? Because after all, I think that's a big part of what you do in your nine to five job or nine to nine job, it may seem like sometimes. <laughs> um, that's such an insightful question. So yeah, for instance, there is a character in All the Demons Are Here that is you know, loosely based on Rupert Murdoch. There's a media magnate who comes to the United States to start a tabloid. But this time, it's in my fictitious telling, it's he starts a tabloid in Washington, D.C., as opposed to what Murdoch did, um, buying papers in San Antonio and then buying the New York Post. And the fictitious character, Max Lyon, I didn't want him to be, you know, some caricature of a, you know, like Mr. Burns, like in his <laughs> accident. You know, I didn't want it to be, I wanted him to be believable and attractive and because one of the main characters in the book, there are two main characters, Lucy and Ike, they're brother and sister. They're the main, they're the kids of the main characters from my previous two novels. And Ike is a Marine. He's out in Montana with Evil Knievel. Lucy is a journalist in the world of journalism in 1977 in DC with Bernstein and Woodward and, and those people floating in and out. And she gets enticed and joins this family in this new tabloid. And I thought it was important to portray Max Lyon as a character who is charming and arg making arguments about journalism that, you know, might make sense to some people. And some of the quotes are actually taken directly from Rupert Murdoch, that there's no, there's no industry in the world other than journalism that I'm mangling the quote, but it's, it's in the book. The point is he said, there's no, there's no industry in the country other than journalism that talks down to its readers and are so proud in not giving them what they want. It was something like that. And, and the idea that that's how Murdoch, or in my, in my retelling, Max Lyon, looks at journalism, like it's snobby. And I've got the quote right here. I think it's, uh, I cannot help wondering whether there is any other industry in this country that presumes so completely to give the customer what he does not want. So thank you. So yeah, that's a real Murdoch quote. And I totally understand that quote. And look, when Fox started years ago. And I remember when I was interviewing for a job at ABC News in 2002, 2003, I remember having a conversation with David Weston about Fox at Fox in 2002, 2003. As much as they were beating the drum for war in Iraq, they were still very, very different from what Fox is today, in my view, in a positive way then in a negative way today. And one of the things that I thought Fox did well then and still does well is their presentation of news is more attractive. And I think they have they have actually brought cable news and broadcast news with them in terms of just like more engaging graphics, less staid, less boring. And that's not necessarily negative. And that's one of the things I wanted to get at when understanding this character, Max Lyon, is his son, um, Harry, makes the argument to Lucy because Summer of Sam is going on in New York and in DC, they want their own Summer of Sam. And the New York Times is not really covering the Summer of Sam. And if you go back and look, like it was kind of like a minor crime story to them. And meanwhile, the entire city was terrified. And the Post and the and the Daily News were rising in circulation and newsstand sales because people were wanting to know what's going on. Now, I, certainly there's room for criticism of how the tabloids treated Summer of Sam, but the idea also that like there are random women being killed by a serial killer in the outer boroughs and the New York Times is treating it like a minor crime story also seems a bit off. So that, 
is the best example I can think of, of, of trying to understand in a way to make the characters, even if they are ultimately not heroic characters, more human, which helps me in a way in my job uh, separately in the world of nonfiction, talking about the media and talking about, and also just how to do my job, how to how to do, do my job in a way that that brings people in. There's nothing wrong with with wanting people to watch your new show. It's just a question of what you do to get there. Right. And and storytelling, I mean, our, our brains are so hardwired for stories. We remember things like 20 times better if there are characters uh, than if we're just getting facts. And in some ways, if I want to learn about a time period, I, I actually want to read a novel about that time period to understand what it actually felt like to be part of that time period. I remember, as long as we're being pretentious, I remember reading a review of the film about East Germany, The Lives of Others, in the New York Review of Books, and it was discussing some of the criticisms of that film that, oh, some of the things weren't factually true. And the author of the review said, well, what's important is it really captured the feeling of what it was like to be there, even if a few of the facts were off. And so I, I think what the best fiction does and, and what I, I really felt when reading your book is it, it kind of captures the feeling and a particular energy of, of a particular moment. And I think that's really helps you to, to understand. So I want to talk about the, the choice of the year 1977. So I, I noticed you've you've kind of now this is the third in this series and, and you've, you've worked through the decades. You picked 54 with McCarthy and then you kind of had a, a Kennedy Rat Pack Sinatra uh, thing, but now, now you, you know, now you're jumping ahead to to seventy seven. So how, when you when you think about a year in each decade, how do you think like this is the year that I really want to capture? And what is it about nineteen seventy seven? Is it is it that kind of tabloid journalism thing that that you were talking about before? You got the death of Elvis in there. A lot happens in 77. I was thinking about, so I was going to skip the 70s altogether. And then a journalist friend of mine, a woman who's a little older, so she lived through the 70s as a as an adult, told me not to, that that would be a mistake. Because I, I was born in 69, and to me, the 70s always kind of were lame. Because A, they were, other than the bicentennial, I don't really have any great memories of it politically or or or, or sociologically. And then, you know, for me, you know, the 80s just seemed much more positive and the 70s seemed just like a, a decade in malaise. But she made the argument, no, you're, you're, you're totally missing out. You're missing. And, and I, I went back and I looked. And so she was right about the 70s in general. But 77 was Elvis dies. It's the summer of Sam. Studio 54 opens. Uh, Star Wars premieres. There's the Manhattan blackout. The country is still reeling from Watergate and Vietnam, but they're not like front of center issues. It's more like, okay, what do we do now? Like moving, looking forward kind of thing. Then I listened to this and it was when I was writing the book and trying to figure out what to do. Uh, and I knew I was going to have Evil Knievel as a character because some friends of mine were such Evil Knievel devotees and he's such a, a quintessential American character, so great and so resonant, like I mean, he could only be an American character, like this guy who's not really that good of a, a motorcyclist, but is able to do these stunts and become this huge hero that is like literally on the cover of Sports Illustrated and Rolling Stone. And he's on ABC Wide World of Sports. So anyway, I knew that was going to be part of the book because that would there would be something I wanted to say about about these larger than life kind of 
showman characters in the vein of, of uh, Donald Trump and the like. Um, but then I was listening to a, a Slate podcast called 1977. They, were do, they do this thing called One Year, and they, had a, and they had a thing called 1977. And I listened to it, and they had this one that I thought was really resonant that becomes like a, a subplot in the book, which is about Leia Trill. Leia Trill was this kind of like quackery uh, that people were convincing the American people was a cure for cancer. And it was not a cure for cancer, but they were convincing people that it was. And the, there was pressure on Carter and others to approve Leotril. Members of Congress were, and governors were like allowing it, et cetera. And it was quackery. It didn't work. It didn't work. But that combined with Agent Orange, which was still not being acknowledged by the government, although it was finally starting to get some notice in the press, convinced me like, okay, because that's a whole subplot of the book is people who have Agent Orange poisoning, wanting to get Leia Trill. Uh, and that becomes a reason for a group of people, including Ike, to want to go to Washington, D.C. To, to demand change. And that was part of, again, trying to understand, because James, you asked about trying to understand things, trying to understand January 6th as seen through the characters of this book, why would a mob come to Washington to do what they did or to protest or whatever? And most of them were law-abiding and all that. Why were they there? And so I wanted to have a mob that was not all just bad guys, but also innocent people who actually have legitimate grievances, innocent people who have illegitimate grievances, uh, other people just swept up in it, like one of the main characters, Ike, and all following a charismatic figure. And so that also was part of what I wanted to get at, which is not to demonize these individuals, but to try to explain it in a way that, that people might be able to understand. I mean, obviously it's the, the comparisons are not direct and it's, you know, what ends up getting stormed and everything like that is different, but the idea of it, I wanted to understand. Yeah, I think the individual focus that you can only get, I mean, you can't only get it, but you, it's easier to get in the fiction setting. It's really important because, and it holds, I think, a key to our current dysfunction because we, we typically conduct our politics in this moral register today. Everything is very abstract. We see good guys and bad guys. Evil is everywhere. And in reality, as, as Shakespeare tells us, there's good and there's bad in everything. Everyone's flawed. We've got contradictions all around us. And it's almost, it's very humanizing, I think, in a way to recognize that the person across from you that is, is battling you in, in a debate is an individual with their own hopes and dreams and passions, however bad or wrong they may be in your opinion. And, and you have to take account of that. And that's, I think, what we see in, say, the, the Annie Bellum era, where we have John Quincy Adams and John C. Calhoun. And John C. Calhoun is a pallbearer for John Quincy Adams' funeral. Or how Webster and Calhoun, who don't like each other, and they like to beat up on each other, but they have deep respect for one another. And that allows them to partner at times and then not partner at times on other things. But I think that's critical. And we don't see that anymore. We don't see individuals. And I think if we spent more time telling stories and reading stories, we would remind ourselves that they're human beings. And there's something that led them to do what they're doing and to say what they're saying and to believe what they believe. And if we try to understand that, we don't have to agree with it. That then gives us a better basis for, I think, compromise and moving on. And it may not always happen, but I think that's critical. And it's one of the reasons why in my coverage, I always try to under, try to distinguish between the people who believe the lies about the election or whatever and the people who are lying to them. 
because it because it is different. It is different. There are millions of Americans who believe these lies about the election or lies about whatever, QAnon, et cetera, et cetera. And then there are the people who are seeking power and money and the rest to tell them those lies, to share those lies. And they are not the same. They're not the same. One group, in a way, is a victim of the other group. And I think that's very important, especially as people demonize. I hate I hate it so much when politicians or media folks make fun of entire swaths of the country, whether it is the right wing making fun of Californians or the left wing making fun of flyover country. It bothers me so much. I, I hate it when people talk about real Americans because there's no such thing. Right. I mean, you know, you can talk about citizens. These people are citizens and these are not, but that's not what they mean. They mean this group is real Americans and this group who's also American citizens, they're not real. And um, I hate it. I hate it when it's deployed. I hate it when I see it on any channel. Definitely if I ever see it or even a hint of it on my channel, because that's not I, I, that's just not how I view the world. Yeah, and I, I first saw this when I was the director of uh, research at the Heritage Foundation. And I was in the political context. We had a board member. And I was visiting him, a young guy and his wife. Uh, they were dear friends, great couple, and they're both very pro-life. And they have a conversation about abortion policy, and he's talking about it in the abstract. And it is very black and white. And it is like in the way he talks about it, the de the demeanor, his tone, everything is is unwelcoming to a conversation with someone who disagrees with him. She, on the other hand, is just as pro-life as he is. But she also works for a nonprofit who would go into homes and meet with women and sit on their sofas and listen to them. People who were considering having an abortion, and she would have, and she doesn't agree with them. She's trying to change their mind, but she sees them as a person, as an individual, and all the things that go into that decision. And that humanizes that issue for her. And the way that she talked about it was much more kind of conducive, I think, to a, a conversation, to a debate between people who disagree. Even And even if they can't reach an agreement in the end, that debate still goes a lot differently. And so I think that is absolutely critical in our politics. I think it's what we're missing in, in, a, in a large degree. And think about this. I've been a journalist in Washington since the late 90s. So whatever that is, 20 something years. And I can only think of one member of Congress who is anti-abortion uh, or pro-life, pro whatever we're going to call, uh, Congresswoman Nancy Mace. I've only heard of one who's talked about let's increase birth control so that these, these unwanted pregnancies don't happen to begin with. and. To be frank, I haven't heard a lot of outreach from the left either about like there. I mean, there is a huge arena right there for people who mm -hmm. are in favor of abortion rights and people who are opposed to abortion rights to try to reduce unwanted pregnancies. If everybody just came together and said, OK, let's improve sex education in schools. Let's make sure people have access to birth control. Let's make sure people like all that stuff. And maybe they would be doing it for completely different reasons. One, it's like empowering women, empowering girls, whatever. The other side is. This will reduce the number of abortions, but there's a huge ground right there, but people don't talk to each other. So I, I, that's just one example because you were mm -hmm. just talking about abortion. I completely agree. And it's so dispiriting as somebody who doesn't have a dog in the fight and is just a journalist and just like, okay, well, it does seem like there's a lot of room for compromise here, even though you're diametrically opposed on this part right here. And, and it's, it's like that on guns. It's like that on abortion. It's mm -hmm. like that on so many things. Uh, it's it's one of the, you know, both you guys work for organizations that seek to move past that, uh, which is so healthy. But um, as you also know, there are a lot of organizations. There's a lot more money in the division yeah. 
than in the than in the common yeah. no, cause. Yes, yes, it, it's it's easier to get people to give you money when you tell them that their country is going to be taken away and everything dear to them is at threat, unless you it's we the most just important election ever. Just need five dollars and, and and access to your bank account. But that's um, also but just so just just to bring it back to the book for a second. There is a I don't I don't want to spoil it because I do want people to read it. There is a confrontation at the end. Every there are these two different stories, Ike and Lucy, and there's a confront and they 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 weave in. They're they're together at the beginning. They're together in the middle, and then they come together at the end in this in in what will be a violent confrontation with both of their storylines coming to this big crescendo. But they are on a superficial level on opposite sides of this. Ike is with a group that is going to storm a place where Lucy is and they're on opposite sides. Now they're not actually on opposite sides, but their, their vectors are in that direction. And so that's one of the things I was trying to get at is like, we are not opposed in that way. Um, we shouldn't be anyway. So, I mean, I, I love this conversation thinking about how, how fiction can, can help uh, and stories can help us better understand each other. I, I often think back to an argument about how it was the rise of the novel that created the whole concept of human rights, because before the novel, it was very hard for people to envision the lives of others beyond their borders, and novels kind of gave people an imagination. I, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's an argument that's that's always stuck with me. But one point that, that you were talking about with uh, with Evil Knievel as a character, and I want to dig into that a, a little bit because he makes such a fascinating character, and you know, you really draw out these kind of proto-Trump parts of, of this whole spectacle, and, and there were some speeches that he gave that seem like they're they're drawn from Trump speeches, or at least have clear resonance uh, with them. But I, when we do think about politics as spectacle, and it's and it's all spectacle, it kind of takes us away from the humanity of it almost. And and so I just sort of curious if you saw that era, and you pick that time in these characters as the kind of moment in which politics was moving more towards spectacle, if you saw that as kind of an inflection point. Because I think that that sort of 77, 78 period is, is often seen as an inflection point for a lot of things, including the, the moment in which inequality starts to increase, when polarization really starts to increase. And, you know, maybe it's also a moment in which our, in which spectacle begins to overtake fact in politics. I mean, maybe. I mean, one of the reasons, obviously, and this is not meant in a, in a, as a disparaging observation about Ronald Reagan, but obviously, as the first former actor to ever become uh, president of the United States, and as somebody who uh, was extremely adept at communication in a visual way, and books have been written about this, and obviously, Leslie Stahl's famous story, but when she was a White House correspondent, and they called her in, and showed her her own story and she said something like didn't you listen to the words like that was a very critical story and they said something like we didn't care about the words we just looked at the pictures which were amazing that was an inflection point for the country the origin of evil knievel being a character in this book started a couple years ago and james you're wearing a, a fishing uh, baseball cap um which is related because i'm about to go back to this idaho um, fishing lodge that i go to every year with my family and I was there a couple of years ago, and it's in Swan Valley, just a few miles away from where Evil Knievel tried to jump over uh, the Snake River 
in a wily coyote roadrunner rocket ship of some sort that was a spectacular failure and went down in 1974 people thought he would he was killed um but i was there and there were people at that lodge who were huge fans of evil Knievel. and for some reason even though i am of that era born in 69 and so i was eight and you know cognizant of the world although i did not know about summer of sam for sure I think my parents kept that from me that I missed that whole thing. I missed the entire evil can thing. Like I remember it. I just was not interested. He, just did, he didn't do anything for me, but these friends of mine loved him. And then one of them told me to watch this documentary that the other friend had helped make called uh, being evil, which I did. And it was really well done. And then I read some books about evil can And I realized, man, this guy really was in many ways, a Trump character before Trump in the sense of his salesmanship, his ability to attract eyeballs and interest, his willingness to say outrageous things that got attention. Like he really, it is a, it is a, to me at least, a distinctly American type. Uh, and again, I, none of this is meant pejoratively about Mr. Trump, but like it was, I mean, obviously there were some negatives as well in there, but it really just was very resonant. And I thought, what an interesting character, what an interesting person I could play with since uh, I, you know, I played with Sinatra in 62 and I played with Joe McCarthy in 54, like that would be fun. That would be fun to play with um, what a complex and interesting character that I really didn't know much about. And then the idea of him launching a presidential campaign, uh, which happens in the book and did not happen in real life, kind of amazingly, by the way, I'm kind of amazed he didn't. You know, if he had like in the 90s, if his age had worked out and his fame had crescendos at, crescendoed at the right way, I'm sure he could have or would have run for office of some sort. But uh, that just seemed like a, a natural way to have fun with it and explore it. And you said some of the things he says in the book sound like Trump. There might be a line or two that was actually said by Trump that I put in Evil Knievel's mouth when he's campaigning, when he's campaigning. Um, but I just thought like he was a very... Trump before Trump, in a way, just in his ability to get press attention and his ability to, to gain followers. And I don't know anything about motorcycles, and motorcycles are a big part of this book. They're very important, not just for Evil Knievel, because Ike is a, major, is, a, is a motorcyclist. There are big plot points that rely on Ike being able to ride a motorcycle and me being able to credibly write about him riding a motorcycle. I don't know about you guys, but I hate it when I'm watching a movie about politics or the news and they just get it completely wrong. They have no idea what they're talking about. Just, I just, you know, like Dave, where the president is introducing legislation, or maybe that's the American president, whatever. One of them, the president introduced legislation. It's like presidents don't introduce legislation. It was like White House Bill 5. Right. What, what is this, Brazil? Yeah. Well, I mean. Do, read, do the reading, man. Um, <laughs> so I my, all of which is a long way of saying I hired a motorcycle writer, in addition to rider, to look at everything I wrote and say, please make it so people like you will read this book and think I know a carburetor, a carburetor from a kickstand because I don't. And he did. And then separately, after we had finished our bit of business and, you know, I, I paid him to do the edits on the motorcycle part, he said, by the way, you might be interested in this. And he had written, unbeknownst to me, years before uh, a comparison of Evil Knievel and Donald Trump as a fan of Evil Knievel. Not, again, not meant disparagingly necessarily, but like just like they really do have things in common that are very interesting in terms of capturing the attention of the American people, which is no small thing. We have, you know, 15 people running for president right now, including the current president, who would love to know how to do it. Um, well, you know, I think you could make a carburetor into a kickstand. Mate. I don't know anything about motorcycles either. 
you know, they're kind of terrifying. But yeah, this is my, uh, I'm a big fly fisherman. And uh, this is a Cobia tournament I was just in. I did not come in first. I did not. I came in very, very much, probably last. I don't know. And I'm on the board of Fly Fishers International. I turned my hobby into a job that I don't get paid for. I'm obsessed. But one of the things that we're doing at the organization is trying to revamp our learning center and all this information we have that is geared towards an older audience. And it was de- and it was developed at a different time. And it's not to change the information, but how do you take this curriculum and how do you package it and put it into a format that meets the audience where they are? And what we've learned in studying this is that people consume information differently today than they once did. It's not even an age thing. You know, it's like older people consume different information and there are new mediums that matter in video format and the length of video. I mean, you know all this. This is what you guys do. And that is going to emphasize then some skill sets and individuals in the political setting that are now going to be much more powerful or much more attractive, like going back to Reagan and you have your Trump-like figures and whomever. And you can disparage it. People can disparage it all they want. But it seems to me that, you know, that's right now, for better or worse, that's what's working. And so people are going to do that. You know, I love Charlie Rose and no lights and it's dark and there's a table. I like the news hour. I like writing with pen and paper, but I am an oddity. I am a freak of nature when it comes to that stuff these days, apparently. When I teach, everybody's got their laptops up or their iPads out. I get that. And so, you know, to better understand politics, and then if you are a politician to succeed in politics, you have to get that and you have to tap into that. And I think that that's, that's a, it's a really important point, I think, that comes out of your, your book about this certain kind of character types and how they are attracted or not attracted to certain kinds of uh, mediums and their personality are portrayed differently and sometimes more easily in different mediums. I think it's really important to our, to our story today. But I wanted to ask you, there's a lot of similarities between today and the novel, but I want to ask you about some of the differences. So politics during the periods in which your novels are set, so the 50s, 60s, and 70s, is pretty intense. I, you know, I'm a child of the 80s. I was born in 1980, but at the end of the day, like I study this, I read about it a lot, and it strikes me as being insane. Like American politics in many respects was, it felt like it, especially in the 60s, like no one was happy. Everybody was pissed off. Everybody's trying to change the world. They're taken to the streets. They're doing it sometimes violently, sometimes not. And when we have these great periods of violence and all of this tumult and change, we also had, if we look at Congress, the most explosive period of legislative productivity in the institution's history. And they did big things. As a conservative, I may not like all of them, but that's not the point of America, right? I don't have to like everything to acknowledge that it's a big thing. I mean, we're creating departments. We're doing all kinds of stuff, going all the way through to the end of the 70s. And you have deregulating the airlines. You have Ted Kennedy challenging Jimmy Carter and his, you know, the calls and doors speech. All of this stuff is happening. But it seems like when things are going bad in American history, the same thing with the antebellum period as well, when there's lots of violence, there's almost a rededication to the political process. There's a rededication to politics as a way, is the only other way outside of violence to resolve our disagreements and make collective decisions. And I'm wondering, as I look to today, where we have this sense of these zero-sum issues that aren't zero-sum as we've discussed, it's like we're making mountains out of molehills, and I don't want to minimize the importance of the issues we have today. But like a post office naming will just paralyze Congress. And it's almost as if like Congress is a graveyard these days. It's like there's not this sense of, you know, Bob Dylan, the times they are changing when he says we're going to rattle your walls and, you know, shake your windows and rattle your walls or whatever the lyric is like that. Where is that? You see the gun rights stuff. It's like there's a there's like a flash in the pan, a bit of outrage, and then it goes away on the right. It's the same thing. And have you 
learned or gleaned anything from kind of thinking about this time period in an individualized setting in your novels and to better understand why the sense of possibility in our politics is much more stunted, it seems to me, today than it was back then. And I could be just, you know, not seeing it correctly. I'll just do just I'll do 77 uh, as opposed to the 50s and 60s, because those were such in the, you know, the, the McCarthy year is what I wrote about in the first book. I think one of the real problems we have today is a mistrust of expertise. And I understand why it exists 100%. I'm not saying that this, uh, this occurred in a vacuum, but the, the mistrust of expertise is not because of people who have questions and want to challenge assumptions. That's healthy and that's great. And that should always be there. It is the people who demonize experts as somehow wanting to, for some, for some nefarious aim. A good example of this would be um, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. and his crusade against childhood vaccines, um, which began in earnest in 2005 and continues today. And he says things about the childhood vaccines that are not true, just not true at all. Like, for instance, he talks about thimerosal as preservative in vaccines. It hasn't been in vaccines for more than 20 years. Uh, that's what he accuses of causing autism in kids, uh, which there is the you know, overwhelming majority of, of the scientific evidence says that, no, that's not true. But beyond that, like it also hasn't been in vaccines. I think it was taken out in 99 and then like whatever was left was, you know, that was still in some vaccines. It was gone soon after that. And there's just such a, a, a mistrust of, of expertise, the mistrust of science, a mistrust of the people who are trying to encourage people to get these vaccines. And you hear everything. Oh, they're trying to put microchips in us. They're trying to, they're just trying to make money. Uh, it's just about billions. It's just about, I mean, and so that is so strong now, it is dangerous. And I'm not talking about the, again, I'm not talking about questioning. I'm talking about demonizing and I'm talking about people who are passing themselves as a, off as experts who are just wrong. They say things that are inaccurate. Obviously, all medicines have side effects. That's just a fact, you know, and no one that I know of who's in the scientific community is claiming otherwise. That happens with everything. So I think that's a real problem. And then you have uh, media organizations that are built around, uh, and I do not include CNN in this. Um, media organizations that are built around preaching to choirs, not hearing from the other side, demonizing the other side, not adhering to um, facts when it comes to the Dominion lawsuit. That's really unhealthy um, because we all remember Tom Friedman has this um, interesting observation. I don't know if it's his, or but I, I heard it from him, which is uh, like he talks about the graph of this is the graph of technological progress. And this is the graph of the ability of humans to adapt to that technological progress. And it tracks really closely. And then like comes like 2007 or something like that, where it's like smartphones and the internet and everything. And humans are still here. And you might remember in 2016, there was a real, and I saw this in like 2008 on the internet. I remember one time somebody sending me a video of a scene from the movie, The War Room. And they, somebody had changed it so it sounded like all these uh, Clinton staffers were insulting Indiana. And, I, and I, I just believed it. It's like 2007, 2008. I just believed it. And it wasn't true. 
And it just like rocked my world that somebody would do that and that that was possible. And then, so it, it wasn't a surprise eight years later when people were posting stories on Facebook from like these invented websites, like the Denver Inquirer or whatever they would, it would sound, and it would be about Hillary Clinton, like, you know, cannibalizing babies or whatever. And people's grandmas and uncles were like, did you see this? We're in a world now where there is a lack of respect for expertise because of our time-honored and amazing freedoms of speech. There are all these bad actors taking advantage of information for shits and giggles, for electoral wins, for owning the libs, for owning the cons, whatever. And like, I think these two things are one of the biggest problems we have right now, because when the Laetrile thing was happening in 1977, it had a big impact on politics. Uh, and all these states were passing laws allowing people to use Laetrile which, you know, we could have a debate about if you want. Like, I don't really have a position on whether or not people should be allowed to do experimental treatments or not. But it was quackery. It was, it was you know, it was apricot pits. It, it wasn't real. And people died as a result. Steve McQueen died in Mexico trying to cure his cancer with Leotril. Not like he would have survived anyway, but I'm just saying. Anyway, so the, I think that that problem, the Leotril problem that I write about in the book, in 77, if it were today, I think it would be a much bigger problem. So the last kind of riff you had there on how people have lost the sense of proportion and, and scale in what they're doing almost comes to mind in that there's like this sort of transgressive quality. And it's part of the appeal of Evil Knievel, right, that he's doing this thing that's a, that's a bit transgressive and it's a bit risky and it's a bit exciting. And, and it's sort of the joy of reading fiction in a sense that there's a little bit of sense of play and uncertainty. And we, we kind of all need that at, at some level. But what's happened is we've lost the sense of scale of that play. Like we can toy around with ideas among our friends and in late night, you know, BS sessions. But now suddenly we can put it up on the Internet and it gets traction and then there's a business around it. and then. So used it's about to be to get worse also with the yeah. and AI. It's about to get much, much, much worse. And you know, I, I think as trust breaks down, as we lose the sense of of trusted gatekeepers who who we can turn to, it, it becomes even worse because then it just you know, celebrity and money and size of of your followers become the thing that is like this gravitational attraction, and everything in politics just has this level of of distance and abstraction and scale that is just really not not at at, at a, a human level, and would contrast that to stories of actual people and the complexities, which is what you get from fiction and dealing with those complexities. We, we just don't have a politics that really allows for that anymore. Everything is at this incredible abstract scale. Well, and let me say there have been a number of bipartisan accomplishments uh, that have been achieved in the last couple of years that I think we do need to acknowledge. Um, the CHIPS Act, again, not talking, I'm not saying I'm pro or con, but like they did their work. The CHIPS Act, the um, infrastructure bill, uh, there was, uh, after Uvalde, there, were, there was something done about, about guns. Uh, some people probably think it's too much. Some people probably think it's too little, but like there was something done. Uh, encouraging red flag laws and the like. Again, 
you know, James might have an opinion about whether he supports that, but like there was some achievement. Guns and motorcycles. I don't know. I don't know. I just stick to the fly rods. But in any case, like I mean, my point is, it's like there have been there have been some achievements, but I do think on the big issues, uh, there have not. The big issues like the Social Security problem that we're all going to be facing in seven or eight years when it becomes insolvent. It's very obvious, like what needs to happen, but there's no middle ground. Right. The deficit and the national debt. Uh, and, and, you know, you both have probably like ideas about things that about topics uh, in addition that you think um, need to be uh, remedied. And so there is some stuff. Um, I wouldn't call it on the margins that these are important issues, but the really difficult issues, it's it's going to be tough to come together as long as I mean, one of the Marjorie Taylor Greene has power because she has learned how to master this world that we're talking about in terms of social media and misinformation and you know not trusting experts and demonizing people and there are people on the left who are you know similar and so then that's a disincentive structure that that, that these people provide for progress yeah and i think and you can do it i mean for good for instance you know i'm a conservative but when aoc hit the scene she was phenomenal one of the most natural legislative talent that I've seen in playing an outside game and using it to overcome forces that are greater than her and ultimately prevail. And by tapping into this, that didn't or hasn't, I think, continued um, in the same degree in her career inside the house. It's a very challenging thing to do once you're on the inside. But she does, I think, provide a hint of a way to look and get down that and, and to look at that and how to use um, you know, outside forces and this new these new platforms to set the agenda, to put issues at the top of the agenda, to reframe the environment and force your colleagues, whether they like it or not, to to ultimately um, kind of act on it. But so I think it can be used for good and for bad. Um, but I don't I think it's you know, we've been you know, um, taking up a lot of your time here. I know we're short on time and I wanted to give you the the last word and, and the close and just you know thank you for for, for spending so much time with us and, and joining us on this episode. It's been a real honor. And I, I just want to say a lot of the stuff that you and your listeners value in terms of talking about what's wrong with our politics, what's wrong with our, our, our news media, what's wrong with our society, what could be improved, what's right with our politics, what's right with our news media, what's right with our society, are themes that I, I really had fun exploring in All the Demons Are Here. I tried to make it a page turner because I know I am competing with everything on people's phones and everything on people's TVs and the streamers and the emails and the tweets and everything you're getting. And that's why I tried to make it as much of a page turner as possible. So you didn't want to leave it to go answer some provocative uh, tweet that somebody sent. And um, so I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. And it was really an honor to do this podcast. And thank you so much. Well, thank you, Jake. It was an honor to have you. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.